I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is Episode 7. In this week's episode, we'll do a deep dive into two articles that touch on topics mentioned in previous podcast episodes. With the article, Multi-Stability in the Agency of Mundane Artifacts, From Speed Bumps to Subway Benches by Robert Rosenberger, we look at the agency of technologies. In his article, Robert focuses on mundane artifacts, but I'll try to show how his discussions relate to more complex technologies like AI and automation systems. With the article Moral Deskilling and Upskilling in a New Machine Age Reflections on the Ambiguous Future of Character by Shannon Valor, we look more at deskilling, such as what can happen to human workers with automation. Only this time we focus not on technical deskilling, but moral deskilling. Okay, let's dive in. Our first paper for discussion focuses on the agency of technology. In episode 6 of the podcast, we discussed how in particular with AI and automation systems, it's like we give agency to these systems to make decisions on our behalf. So how do we better understand what this means? How should we think about the agency of certain technologies? That is the focus of the paper. Multi-stability and the Agency of Mundane Artifacts, From Speed Bumps to Subway Benches, by Robert Rosenberger. Robert is an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and he has a PhD in philosophy from Stony Brook University in New York. His research focus is developing a philosophical framework called post-phenomenology which he uses to investigate aspects of how technologies shape our experiences. We'll have more to say about post-phenomenology in a bit, but Robert has previously written about phantom phone vibrations, Mars satellite imaging, smartphones and driver distraction, and anti-homeless architecture design. Within the field of STS, or Science, Technology, and Society, As well as in the philosophy of technology, the problem of technological agency is trying to understand the role of technology in society. Robert says that some canonical questions that guide research in this problem area are, does the agency of a technology somehow reduce to the choices and actions of its user? Or, does a technology instead somehow shape a user's choices and actions? How should we conceive of the ways that a technology is at once both constructed by a collective of actors and at the same time maintains an influence on that collective? While you and I might be more interested in investigating this problem regarding more complex technologies like AI and automation, perhaps to highlight the effects involved, he uses a simple case study. In the paper, Robert focuses on the public bench, like what you might find in a park, bus stop, or subway. 
That's his motivating technology. Obviously, the bench was designed for people to sit on, though Robert points out that there are other uses of the bench that were not a part of that design. For example, homeless people often sleep on public benches. To counter this unintended use case, now consider the social reaction. People modified the design of the bench to create something known as a sleep prevention bench, which is a bench with vertical risers placed at intervals across the public bench seat. People can sit on the bench between the risers as before, but they can no longer sleep there comfortably. Thus, Robert focuses on the different possible uses and reconfigurations of a technology. There are two main approaches for trying to understand technological agency, post-phenomenology and actor network theory, often abbreviated as ANT. We discussed post-phenomenology in episode 6. This is the research method that builds on the work of Don Eide in studying the relations humans have with technology. ANT is a research approach championed particularly by Bruno Latour. And in general, this approach extends sociological theory to incorporate artifacts, technologies, to help explain or describe the actions of a collection of humans and technologies. While either of those two research methods could be applied to study the agency associated with a particular technology, Robert points out in his paper that the combination of both methods yields more insights than either method alone. He has a lot more detail in the paper, but here's a sketch of the basic idea. Post-phenomenology focuses on examining the relations between humans and technology. That's a very small-scale focus. The method does not really pay attention to the larger associated community or world. Ant, on the other hand, focuses on the larger-scale effects of people and technologies. It does not really pay attention to specific individual human-technology relationships. Robert's contribution is to offer what he calls variational cross-examination as a way to bridge incompatibilities between post-phenomenology and ANT in order to use the two methods in combination. ANT was initially developed to help explain science laboratory practices, especially regarding how science facts are created. This method was expanded to serve as a theory of technology's role in society as well. The method uses networks of relationships between humans and technologies to achieve some agenda. There is a bit of theoretical nuance and detail here, but let me just give an example. The famous example Latour uses is that of a speed bump on the road. Instead of having the police stand on a road enforcing a speed limit, essentially the police employs the services of a speed bump as a non-human actor to achieve the same effect. Here, the police have delegated their role to the speed bump. The agency is in the network of relationships between the police and the speed bump. In fact, Latour says that the French word for speed bump means sleeping police officer. But returning to Robert's example of the sleep prevention bench, using the lens of actor network theory, we can see the network 
between the actual bench and the city or state authorities intent on trying to prevent the homeless from using the bench. Now, as we mentioned in episode six, post-phenomenology builds on Don Eide's work, among others, to focus on how technologies mediate our experiences with the world, such as a pair of glasses or a thermometer. One important aspect of post-phenomenology is that of multi-stable technologies. As Robert says, a single technology can be understood in multiple ways, taken up in many contexts, and employed for various purposes, such as a hammer being used to drive nails into wood, but also a hammer being used as a paperweight, a pendulum, or a murder weapon. Now, those are Robert's examples, not mine. But the idea is that a technology's designers can't possibly capture or even imagine the various ways users may use that technology, such as we saw with the park bench. The key to this merger of research methods, a way to resolve some of the incompatibilities between the methods and terminology, is what Robert calls variational cross-examination. Now, apologies for the next few sentences of jargon, but variational analysis is a post-phenomenological method by the researcher for brainstorming and demonstrating a technology's multi-stability, the various ways of using the hammer, for example. But Robert says you can't stop there if your goal is to combine ant and post-phenomenology. The next step you would need to take is his variational cross-examination, where you critically assess these brainstormed multi-stabilities. And it is in this assessment that new information about the technology's stabilities may be revealed. Okay, (laughs) now let's focus on a concrete example. With the sleep prevention bench, a post-phenomenological study without actor network theory would miss the larger community actors involved in the decision to put the dividers on the bench in the first place. Those in the community who want to control the location of the homeless. However, without post-phenomenology, Ant would miss some of the multi-stabilities of the technology and possible relationships humans could have with those various uses. The multi-stabilities of the bench made possible different groups of humans to come into conflict. The bench designers, the users who want to sit down on the bench, the homeless who want to sleep on the bench, and community members who disagreed with the homeless people's alternative uses of the bench. The resulting addition of the vertical risers resulted from the group that had more power. The point, Robert says, is that a technology's role in the overall agency attributed to an assemblage does not reduce to either individual bodily relations or to group dynamics, and that it is not possible to provide a complete account for either factor alone without engagement with the other. While the resulting more complete accounting of a technology from the combination of the two research methods might seem simplistic when considering a park bench, I think the combined approach suggested by Robert is certainly interesting when considering more complex technologies, such as AI and automation systems, since there are rich opportunities for research, both when considering individual user experiences, as well as when considering the agendas of larger communities. Okay, the second paper we're discussing today is 
Moral Deskilling and Upskilling in a New Machine Age Reflections on the Ambiguous Future of Character by Shannon Valor. Shannon is a professor of philosophy and the Bailey Gifford Chair in the Ethics of Data and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Edinburgh's Edinburgh Futures Institute. And she has a PhD in philosophy from Boston College. Shannon currently focuses on exploring how emerging technologies, such as those involving automation and artificial intelligence, impact and shape our moral and intellectual habits, skills, and virtues. In other words, how these technologies affect our character. Back in episode two of the podcast, we discussed how in the U.S. after World War II, inspired in part by division of labor theory from Adam Smith, Management began dividing and simplifying work processes, and they also began automating more jobs. These two approaches helped management gain more control and power over the workplace, but they tended to reduce worker salaries, skills needed to perform their jobs, and the satisfaction gained from their work. This work process simplification, this reduction in the skills workers need to perform their jobs, this is known as de-skilling. And the concept of de-skilling has framed a lot of the machine automation discourse since then. This is obviously a very touchy subject in today's society. Over time, as jobs were eliminated due to work simplification and automation, finding skilled labor became more difficult, which amplified the need for more automation. But the costs and benefits of automation are not always clear. Consider, for example, that in many knowledge worker jobs, there has also been upskilling. Many office workers no longer have to manually file, copy, and collate physical papers. Their jobs have been upskilled to be able to use the computer, and many previous tasks have been automated into paperless workflows. Also, consider how a surgeon might delegate a hip replacement surgery to a robot. Might the patient now receive better quality of care? The economic and sociological impacts of automation is an open area for discussion. But Shannon's paper instead focuses on the moral issues with de-skilling and the potentials for moral upskilling, a topic that is today, shall we say, perhaps understudied on the engineering and business sides of the house. Shannon's starting point is to establish the relationship between morals, skills, and virtue. The foundation comes from Aristotle's work with ethics, especially the collection of books referred to as Nicomachean ethics. There, Aristotle establishes that virtuous people possess the ability to make moral decisions at the right times with reference to the right objects, towards the right people, with the right aim, and in the right way. This ability is not innate with the person. This ability is not innate with the person, however. Rather, it's a skill established and developed over time through practice and work. Shannon says that virtues are cultivated rather than inborn states of character. You need moral skills, but moral virtue comes from the repeated opportunities to practice those skills. The kicker for automation is that if technologies through de-skilling, for example, takes away opportunities for humans to practice their moral skills, if this occurs on a large enough scale, then this 
negatively impacts the future of human character. So not only can the implementation of technology result in technical de-skilling, but moral de-skilling as well. Now, maybe if you're a tech bro in Silicon Valley developing surveillance technologies and feel that there's no need for human virtue, well, you should still be concerned about technology's impact on moral skill development. Shannon says, moral skills are intrinsically valuable, even when they do not lead to the development of truly exemplary persons of virtue. Just as today, in society, we value handcrafted artisan products, a technical skill that's becoming rare due to mass production, we should also value the development of moral skills and should avoid their loss. Shannon discusses three concrete examples of risks in moral de-skilling. The risk that military drones and other autonomous weapon systems may engender moral de-skilling of soldiers in the use of military force. The risk that new media practices of multitasking may engender de-skilling in the realm of moral attention. And the risk that social robotics may engender moral de-skilling in practices of human caregiving. Now, I encourage you to read about these examples in her article, but just to give a few details about one of them, robot caregivers. The scenario involves social robots that are being developed to help give care for older adults, for example. Let's assume we are able to create such robots, robots that can give adequate care. The moral issue is that if these robots take the roles once held by human caregivers, what about the loss in caregiving skills in the humans? After all, being able to care for someone from a health perspective is a learned skill that includes attentiveness, responsibility, competence, and reciprocity. Assuming you agree that being able to give care to another individual is a moral skill, then if those caregiving skills are lost by the human workers due to automation, at some level and at some scale, this can result in the degradation of human character. We are thus left with considering how technologies are designed and developed. Shannon is calling for technomoral design and development processes. This is above and beyond the typical engineering design and development processes. She's not the first person to make this call, but I think her three case studies and arguments are compelling. The way forward is not obvious to Shannon, and it's not clear to me either, but I'm interested in this research space since I'm heavily involved in the engineering design and development processes and education of engineers. So stick around and maybe together we'll come up with some interesting ideas. And of course, we'll discuss them here on the podcast. And with that, we wrap up episode seven of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thank you for listening and please be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to also help make sure this podcast stays on the air, consider heading over to patreon.com slash Giles to our Patreon page and please sign up. In addition to supporting the show on Patreon, you can sign up to get the show transcripts which include links to the articles and books discussed in each episode. In any case, again, thank you for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.